new audiences, new generations. What is it about this story that has so captured our imagination? Why is this a story that continues to shape us, that continues to fascinate us? Even, even people who would not necessarily identify with either Judaism or Christianity seem to be inspired by this story and fascinated by it, such that it would warrant being turned into uh, a cinematic production. Well, I want to suggest some of the things that make this such a captivating story. I want to begin by trying to give you the big picture of the book of Exodus. Uh, because the book of Exodus is a, it's a long book. We're talking about a book consisting of 40 chapters. And when you're, when you're trying to tackle a book of that size, it's easy uh, not to see the forest for the trees. It's easy to get lost in the details. And I, I feel like one of the most helpful things I can do right up front is to kind of help you see what the point of this book is. Because that's what you don't ever want to lose in the course of teaching this book to your students, right? You want them and you want yourself, you want your whole class to be able to maintain focus on what the big idea is, the major themes, right? But they can be hard to pick out when you're dealing with a book as massive as the book of Exodus, with so many different details being thrown at you, right? So I'm going to try to help you discern what the major themes and the overall structure and the big picture of Exodus is. Once we have that, then I think the details are going to make a lot more sense. Does that make sense? You know how you, when you're, making, when you're uh, doing a puzzle, anybody here like to do those jigsaw puzzles consisting of some crazy like 1,200 pieces? I can't stand them myself, but a lot of other people like them, including many members of my family. And what, what my wife, my wife loves these. And what she's taught me to do is do the frame first, right? Do the edges first, and then make a frame. And then you can fit all the other pieces within, right? Well, that's kind of what I'm doing with the book of Exodus tonight. I want to give us that framework. All right, so let's, uh, let's start by looking at what I believe to be a key text, a key event in this book that serves as kind of a, uh, a focal point for what this book is really about. What I like to do when I'm, when I'm reading a biblical text, when I'm reading a book of the Bible, I bring questions to the text. We all do, don't we? There are certain questions that I want the text to answer. But, but it's recently occurred to me that that might not be the best way to read the Bible, because the Bible may not be interested in answering my questions, right? What if we were to listen to Scripture and see what questions Exodus itself raises? You know, it's interesting, but in the book of Exodus, there are a number of questions that are raised within the text itself. And what I've discovered is, is that if I'll listen carefully to the biblical book, it will teach me which questions I ought to be asking of the text. And this text that we're going to look at right now is a really good example of that. So when we, when we turn to Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, this is what we read. If you want to turn there with me, we'll read it together. You're familiar with this incident. It's, it's famous, and it's even recounted in other places in Scripture. But it says, The entire Israelite community left the wilderness of Sin, moved from one place to the next according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses, Give us water to drink! Why are you complaining to me? Moses replied to them. Why are you testing Yahweh? 
But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to Yahweh, what should I do with these people? In a little while they will stone me. Yahweh answered Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I am going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massah and Merivah because the Israelites complained and because they tested Yahweh, saying, Is Yahweh among us or not? Now, what does that text conclude with? It concludes with a question, a very good question, a very pertinent question to the book of Exodus. Is Yahweh among us or not? I want to submit to you that the book of Exodus is preoccupied with that question. The book of Exodus is attempting to answer that question with a resounding, yes, yes, Yahweh is among you. Yahweh is in the midst of his people. He is never far from his people. He has, in fact, taken up residence in the midst of Israel's camp. That's the climax of the book of Exodus. The last thing that happens in the book of Exodus in Exodus chapter 40, is that Moses finally completes the tabernacle. And once the tabernacle is completed, the glorious manifestation of God that Israel has been manifesting, that Israel has been witnessing at the top of Sinai, it descends that mountain and it comes and it fills that tabernacle, and that's where Exodus ends. The book of Exodus concludes with like a giant exclamation point in response to this question. Is the Lord among us or not? And at the end of Exodus, we see God descending Sinai and entering the tabernacle and filling it with his glory in such a magnificent way, in such an obvious way, that no one by the end of the book of Exodus could deny what? Yahweh has taken up residence in the midst of his people. And from here on out, God will no longer be on top of Sinai with Israel at the foot of the mountain. From here on out, God will be in the tabernacle in the very midst of the camp, leading them every step of the way from here to the promised land. You've got to love a story like that, right? You've got to love a story like that. So this is the question that seems to preoccupy the book of Exodus. And it's a question that actually keeps ringing throughout Scripture until finally God takes a further step and makes his powerful presence even more intimately known. Because you might recall that in the opening of John's Gospel, in John chapter 1, verse 14, he opens his Gospel with these words, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's literally the word that John uses in Greek. The word that John uses in Greek there, that verb comes from the Greek word for tabernacle. The word that the Greek Old Testament uses to translate the Hebrew word for tabernacle. So the book of Exodus is already looking forward to what? Jesus as the ultimate manifestation. Jesus as the ultimate answer to the question, is the Lord among us or not? 
and those of us who follow Christ, those of us who've received his spirit, those of us in whom his spirit dwells, must surely answer that question with a resounding yes. He is among us. So that's the question that's going to kind of guide our study. So Israel has, clearly Israel here in this text, in chapter 17, has doubts about Yahweh's presence. And she has these doubts precisely because she's facing extremely adverse circumstances. I mean, 400 years of slavery would be enough to beat anybody down, I would think, right? 400 years of slavery would be enough to make anyone doubt God's love, God's presence. But then God shows up, and he sets them free, but no sooner are they set free than they face what? Miles and miles and miles of trackless desert with no visible means of support, right? No obvious means of nourishment. No obvious means of water. And of course, that's the issue in chapter 17, isn't it? Where are we going to get water? Moses, did you think about that? Did you think about water? Because I don't see any water, right? Israel, there you go. They're a lot like us. We're a lot like them, aren't we? We were just, we've just started on this journey, and already they're complaining, right? But you see, here's the test. Is the Lord among us or not? And God shows it. God demonstrates it by providing them with everything that they need every step of the way. And I think there are people in our culture today who have this same doubt. They doubt whether or not God is among us. They have questions about whether or not God is active in the world. And we bear some responsibility, don't we, in assuring them that the answer to that question is absolutely yes. What I find interesting is the way this event is recalled over and over again as powerful evidence of God's presence in the midst of his people. And one of the most obvious examples of this, of course, is the way Paul uses it yet again in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. And I, I'll be honest with you, I'm not going to be shy about jumping to the New Testament and showing you just how present this story is in the New Testament, how many times it comes up, because it continues to be a formative story for God's people, even in the church. And I want to encourage you to do that in your classes. Show your students that this story is not just an Old Testament story. It's a story that is recapitulated again and again. It's recapitulated in Jesus' ministry. It's recapitulated in so many of our New Testament texts, and here's one of the places where you see it most clearly, and we'll be referring to this passage time and time again as we work through Exodus because it's such a, a powerful restatement of the story. But the Apostle Paul here says this, beginning in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 10, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. That's a remarkable statement, isn't it? It sure looks like Paul is just reading Jesus right back into the story in Exodus 17, doesn't it? But what's he talking about here? They passed under the cloud and through the sea. What's he referring to? He's referring to Exodus 14, when the sea parted and Israel escaped Egyptian bondage, isn't he? He's, and then he talks about they all ate the same spiritual food. He's talking about manna, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, and he's talking about the water from the rock. You see what Paul's doing. 
he's comparing baptism and the Lord's Supper to crossing the Red Sea, eating the manna, and drinking the water from the rock. You see, Paul insists that the Christian story is continuous with Israel's story. That the Christian story is based on Exodus. And Exodus continues to inform the way we understand our own experience of Christ. And that's something I think we really need to communicate to students as we teach them Exodus, is that this is not just about history. This is about understanding our present experience of Christ, right? And how Christ answers the question, is the Lord among us or not? And after all, according to Matthew's gospel, Jesus' name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. All right. Some of the reasons why uh, this book is so important is that it is the revelation of God's character. This book takes center place in the Old Testament as a revelation of God's character. And this becomes especially clear in another very important text in Exodus, which I would also direct you to as a focal point. If, if, uh, if Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7, raises the question that preoccupies the book of Exodus and therefore should preoccupy us as we study the book, then I would suggest that Exodus chapters 3 and 4 is the first attempt to answer this question. And it answers this question in a fascinating way. God opts not to answer this question with mere words. He opts to answer this question with an apparition, with an appearance. And this, of course, is the famous text of the burning bush. Remember? So uh, Moses has fled Egypt, and he's now living in Midian. He has taken up with a priest there by the name of Jethro, whose daughter Moses has married. And now he is watching his father-in-law's sheep in the wilderness. And as he's watching his father-in-law's sheep in the wilderness, he beholds a bizarre sight. A bush is on fire. And yet, the bush is not consumed and the fire never goes out. And as Moses... I don't know how long Moses stood there and watched this, but it was long enough for him to know that this was very unusual. The fire was not consuming the bush. The, the bush was not the energy that generated the fire. And instead of the bush being reduced to ash and the fire going out, this thing just kept burning, and the, and the bush kept standing, and it's like, what in the world? And so Moses approached. And it was through this apparition that God begins to make himself known to Moses. Now, I used to think that this was just kind of a, um, it was kind of like the first five minutes of a sermon. The first five minutes of a sermon is designed to get your attention, to draw you in, right? And they may or may not have anything to do with the point of the lesson, right? So I kind of, I, I kind of looked at the burning bush that way. It was like kind of a neat trick that God did to get Moses to come close enough where he could have this conversation with him. But I now see it very differently. This is far more than that. Through that burning bush, God is communicating visually what he's trying to communicate verbally as well. So the burning bush is really an, an incredibly important object lesson of what it is that God wants to accomplish through Moses. And so we need to spend some time in this text and understand the significance of what it was that Moses saw. 
And I want you to just think with me for a moment about the significance of the fire being in the bush. Because this is a picture of what God is intending to accomplish in Israel through Moses' mediation. Because just as the fire resided in all of its power within that bush without consuming the bush, so is it Yahweh's intention that he will dwell in Israel's midst in all of his holiness without destroying Israel. Now let that, let that sink in for a minute. There's a, there's a principle you have to understand if you're going to understand the significance of what I just said, the significance of what we're looking at here. You've got to understand that divine holiness is lethal to sinful humans. You do understand that, right? Divine holiness is lethal to sinful humans. It ought not be possible for, for God to get close to us in our sin without his holiness consuming us. But what God is telling Moses is, I'm going to make a way through you, through your mediation, that I can actually live in intimate communion with a sinful people called Israel without compromising my holiness and without destroying them in their sin. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, you have to read the book of Leviticus to learn that. I'm free next year. If you want to come back and tell you that. But we'll, we'll, we'll just stick for the moment that this is what God is talking about. The whole point of the burning bush is for God to communicate the nature of the relationship that he wishes to establish with Israel. And it becomes basic for the kind of relationship he wishes to establish with us. I want you to remember this. One of the most common ways in which Yahweh appears, not just in the Old Testament, but throughout Scripture, is as fire. Have you ever thought about that? One of the most common manifestations of God throughout Scripture is fire. In fact, the author of Hebrews makes this statement. Our God is a consuming fire. Ah, unless he's not consuming. Because in this text, he's not consuming, is he? He can be a consuming fire, but thanks to the mediation of Moses and Christ, he's a fire that may not consume. He is a fire that may simply purify and not destroy. So, as we proceed to consider the significance of what happens here, we are introduced then in this text to a holiness that sanctifies rather than destroys. So just as the fire resides within the bush, so will Yahweh reside within Israel. With the unexpected effect of purifying or sanctifying Israel instead of destroying her. But then it also introduces us to communion that confirms rather than compromises divine holiness. God is still going to be a fire. God is still going to be holy. His contact with Israel, in his contact with Israel, he's not going to compromise his holiness. He's going to purify his people. You see the difference? He's not, he's not going to water down his expectations. He's not going to lower the bar. He's not, in other words, church, he's not going to insult us by saying, you know what, you sinful human beings, God bless you, you can't handle holiness, so I'm going to lower my expectations. No, he doesn't lower his expectations, he raises up his people. Isn't that right? 
He does not lower his expectations. He raises up his people with the power of his spirit. And that's what happens here as well. But then there's also this. Notice that the fire doesn't draw its energy from the bush. This is why the bush is not consumed. The fire is self-sustaining. The fire isn't, isn't reliant on the bush for its burning. That's a remarkable thing because that's, that's not the way fire usually works, right? Fire is usually dependent on kindling for it to burn, right? Fire usually draws its energy from whatever it's burning. And at some point, what it's burning will be consumed and exhausted and the fire will go out, right? I want you to notice that this fire does not draw any of its energy from the bush. What's Yahweh saying to Moses? What's Yahweh saying about the nature of the relationship he wishes to establish with his people? I think he's saying this. I don't need you. I'm not here to take anything from you. This is not a symbiotic relationship in which I draw something from you and you derive something from me. I've got what I need. I've got everything that I need. I am self-sustaining. I'm not dependent on you in any way, Israel. I'm approaching you out of sheer and pure love. I'm approaching you not for my sake, but for yours. And that, and that enables me, that, that complete independence that I have from you, that, that complete lack of any need of anything that you have, is what enables me, Yahweh says, to love you unconditionally. Isn't that right? This is, this is what's so remarkable about Yahweh, what's so unique about the kind of relationship he established with, establishes with Israel that he demonstrates through this burning bush is he hasn't come to take anything from you. Did you hear that, church? God has not come to take anything from you. He has come to fill you. He has come to bless you. He has come to give and to give and to give, not to take, because he has what he needs, right? So this is a, this is a profound statement of what theologians call the aseity of God, A-S-E-I-T-Y, the aseity of God. What that really means is simply this. God is radically independent of his creation. God is radically independent of his creation. He doesn't have to have his creation to exist. He exists independently of his creation. He exists independently of his people. He thrives independently of his creation and his people, which means that if he approaches us for relationship, you can be sure of this. It's purely altruistic. It's not out of any need that Yahweh has. It's out of pure desire. Yahweh wants to have a relationship with you out of pure desire. The book of Exodus teaches us that. Is that something people need to hear today? I think so. I think they need to know that about God because I think a lot of people are suspicious. A lot of people are afraid that God wants something from them, right? That he wants something from them. This is a powerful way of setting the relationship off on the, first, on the, on, on the right foot by recognizing, first of all, that God is radically independent of his creation. Whatever God wants from us, 
is ultimately for our own good, not for his. The next thing to notice about this is that this text, this story, is the paradigm of redemption. Not just in the Old Testament, but for the entire biblical story. What, what you're fixing to embark on here, the study you're fixing to launch, is a study of Israel's gospel. The book of Exodus is Israel's gospel, isn't it? It's the story of Israel's salvation event. And for Israel, this was the paradigm for salvation. Every subsequent request for salvation, every subsequent anticipation of salvation was modeled on this one. And that's even true in the New Testament. But let me just give you an example. Take, for example, when Judah was in Babylonian captivity, long after the Exodus had occurred, She'd been living in the land for centuries. She had continually broken the covenant that Yahweh made with her, which we'll be reading about in the book of Exodus. She had been worshiping idols along with Yahweh, something called syncretism, and Yahweh had finally had enough. And after prophet and prophet and prophet had been sent to warn Israel about the consequences of this kind of infidelity, Yahweh finally had to do what? He finally had to fulfill the covenant curses enumerated in Deuteronomy and send them into Babylonian captivity. But he did it with the promise that that would not be the end of their story. Judgment is never the last word in God's story. That he promised that they would be restored from that. And nearly every prophet has at least something to say about that restoration. And Isaiah in particular speaks to this. And I want you to listen to the language he uses when he refers to this restoration from their captivity. And tell me what, what this reminds you of. So we're in Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. Now this is what Yahweh says, the one who created you, Jacob, and the one who formed you, Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. I will be with you when you pass through the waters. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. You will not be scorched when you walk through the fire, and the flame will not burn you. For I am Yahweh your God, the Holy One of Israel, and your Savior. I have given Egypt as a ransom for you, Cush and Seba in your place, because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. I will give people in exchange for you and nations instead of your life. Now, when he says something like this, when you walk through the waters, I will be with you, and the waves, they will not overcome you. What, what do you think of? You think of the Red Sea, or the Reed Sea, perhaps better, but nonetheless, you think of that event, that, that formative event in Israel where she witnessed the waters part and create a path for her out of an impossible situation, right? She had Egypt behind her, she had the sea in front of her, and she once again did what? That's it. That's all she wrote. Thank you, Moses for bringing us to our death, right? Is the Lord among us or not? And what happened? The waters parted, and she walked through. And when the Egyptians came in after them, the waters swept them away, and not Israel. And even in, in thinking about the restoration from Babylonian captivity, Isaiah speaks of that in what terms? In terms of the Exodus. And we've already talked about, um, well, let's talk about Jesus' birth. If you read the birth account of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, 
Isn't it remarkable how similar it is to the birth account of Moses in the book of Exodus? Moses is born, and a jealous king tries to kill him. And he is saved, right? Look at Jesus. Jesus is born, and a jealous king tries to kill him. And he's saved by going to Egypt, <laughs> right? Can you see how that Matthew is seeing these parallels? And he says, aha, Jesus is that prophet like Moses. Jesus is that prophet that was promised like Moses, who has come to effect a new exodus, right? And then here's the really interesting thing, is that when you go to Luke's account of the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, Luke tells us something there that the other gospel writers do not. He gives us a little bit of information regarding the conversation that Jesus and Moses and Elijah are having when they all appear together. And I want you to uh, notice. So we're in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28. It says, about eight days after this conversation, he took along Peter, John, and James and went up to the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, here's the interesting thing. That word for departure in the original is actually the word exodus. Literally, Luke says this. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So Jesus' redemptive work is referred to as what? Exodus. It's a, recapitu a recapitulation of the Old Testament story of redemption. And then it's the identity-shaping narrative for God's people in both the Old and New Testament. Uh, the Passover, you'll recall, memorialized this event, according to Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. This was how this story was going to be remembered. It was going to be remembered by being ritualized, remembered by being... Uh, reenacted in a meal that Israel observed annually. And of course, as you know, that Passover meal is what eventually gave us the Lord's Supper. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're not just remembering the fact that Jesus is on the cross, but we're remembering the fact that that's the culmination of God's redemptive activity that began with the Exodus, and that recapitulates the Exodus. Now, Christ is referred to as the Passover lamb. Uh, look at um, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 through 8, where Paul once again alludes to the Exodus as he talks about important issues of Christian spiritual formation in a church that badly needs some. Uh, so in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, uh, so we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Wait, am I in the wrong? I'm in the wrong Corinthians. First Corinthians, sorry. First Corinthians chapter 5. That's the thing about these numbered books, isn't it? He says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. Now, why is Paul talking about leaven and cleaning out the leaven? That's part of the Exodus too, isn't it? That's part of the Passover. Is prior to observing the Passover, what did they have to do? They got rid of all the leaven in their houses. Now, what Paul does with that is he says, we do that too, but for us, the leaven is sin. Right? Just as they got rid of the leaven, we get rid of the sin. And then he says, 
Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So you've got, again, allusions here to the Passover. We've already talked about our baptism being compared to the crossing at the Red Sea in 1 Corinthians 10. And here's, here's the thing that I think is most impressive about this. What happens when the Exodus is not remembered? So there's all this emphasis on remembering the Exodus. There's all this emphasis on it in the, in the Passover meal. There's all this emphasis on it culminating in the Lord's Supper. But what happens when the Exodus is not remembered? Look at what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, to a, a generation that had forgotten the Exodus. And this is why I'm so glad that you all are, are covering this book in your classes. Listen to what he says. A powerful, powerful statement with regard to this in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. This is what Yahweh says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they went so far from me, followed worthless idols, and became worthless themselves? Verse 6. They stopped asking, where is Yahweh who brought us from the land of Egypt? who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, through a land of drought and darkness, a land no one traveled through and where no one lived. If you were to ask Jeremiah, Jeremiah, why has everyone strayed? Why has everyone abandoned his or her commitment to Yahweh? Why has this happened? What would Jeremiah have said? Because they stopped asking this question. Where is Yahweh who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. When our children no longer remember our story, we are setting them up for apostasy. When our children's identity is no longer drawn from this event of salvation that we have experienced and that we've shared with them so that they can experience it too, when their identity is no longer shaped by that then another narrative will shape their identity. A very different narrative. And there's plenty of narratives out there to choose from, aren't there? This has got to be the story that they hear. This has got to be the story that they see shaping our lives. This has got to be the story, and this has got to be the question that they ask, is Yahweh among us or not? And the answer that they should hear coming back, shouting back from our lives, and from Scripture, and from the church's testimony is a resounding, yes, he is among us. Now, some of the things that you'll want to touch on as you move through this book that will make it pop and come to life for your students is to show just how many of the themes in Exodus are touching upon contemporary concerns. For example, contemporary concerns for social justice. Boy, we've been living through a rough time, haven't we? Racial tension is, it seems to not be going away. It seems to be intensifying, in fact. And one of the things that impresses me is that this, this story, the Exodus story, has been central to the African-American religious life in a very important way. And it's a way, I think, to reconnect with our brothers and sisters from that tradition to remember just how central it has been to their experience. For example, Harriet Tubman was referred to as the Moses of her people. Do you remember that? Clearly, they were thinking of themselves 
as being in a similar situation as Israel and being dependent on God for their deliverance. Uh, think about the spirituals that were largely based on the exodus from Egypt that sustained that community through so many different periods of oppression. Uh, this was an important story for them, and it needs to become an important story for all of us because we have all participated in that. Or you think about the problem of human trafficking today. Slavery is not something of the past. It's still going on, isn't it? And uh, the bondage that people feel is very real. And I, there's, there's an experience I had not long ago as I was flying back from somewhere to my home in Searcy, and I had to have a layover in Atlanta. And while I was in the Atlanta airport, these signs were posted all over the Atlanta airport that said, if you, are, if you have been enslaved, if you're being held against your will, here's a number that you can call. I was startled because I had never been in an airport with signs like that before, and it, it just it suddenly dawned on you. This is a serious problem. This is happening now, and the story of Exodus speaks precisely to those who are suffering in those kinds of situations, and I think raises our awareness that we need to be involved in liberation. We need to, we need to be a people among whom Yahweh lives for the sake of bringing liberation to the enslaved and the oppressed because they're still among us. And Yahweh won't have it, right? Yahweh won't have that in his world without doing something about it. This is a book about God's judgment against arrogant, oppressive regimes. Aren't you glad we don't have any of those anymore in the world? Right? This is very contemporary, isn't it? I mean, the way Yahweh confronts Pharaoh ought to be a, a humbling reminder to us of the way Yahweh confronts all worldly power that oversteps its bounds that overestimates its authority, that aggrandizes its, uh, its nature. But what's most impressive about the book of Exodus to me is how that the memory of our own oppression becomes motivation to alleviate suffering for others. This is a very important point that comes up in the laws that God gives Israel in Exodus. A prime motivation for many of the laws is this. For example, he says, you treat the resident alien in your midst very well because you were, what? Resident aliens in the land of Egypt. He says, you let your servants go after seven years. Why? Because you were slaves in the land of Egypt. Isn't that interesting? How that the memory of this story becomes the foundation, becomes the basis of Israel's ethical life. Very interesting, I think. And I think that's something that we want to... Uh, to embrace and to get a hold of. Well, it looks to me like we're about out of time for our first session, so I'm going to pause it there, and um, I will continue with this. I want to continue with this in our next session, and then we'll, we'll cut short a little bit of the historical stuff, but we'll touch on the important parts of that. Uh, but thank you so much for your kind attention, and I hope what you've heard in this first session is validation that this is a book worth really spending some time with and teaching to your students. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. 30 minutes. We'll take a break until about 